Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to a familiar passage, Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, this is a passage that's familiar to us, especially in this Christmas season, um, that is quoted to us from the gospel account. But today we will be looking at the Isaiah passage in its context so we can kind of uh, draw out what was taking place during that time and what it means for us today in this um, place in redemption. So Isaiah 7, beginning in verse 10. Let's read together. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. And the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house Such days as have not come since the day Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. This is the word of the Lord. Isaiah 7 recounts to us a place of desperation that confronts a divided heart. The main point of Isaiah 7 and the main kind of heading we'll take in this sermon this morning is that the promise of Emmanuel leads us to abandon all of our strategies of self-salvation for a dependency on the God who saves us completely. You see, the book of Isaiah is an announcement that only God saves Fundamental to all divine deliverance in the book of Isaiah is a trust in God. And this theme is central, particularly to chapters 7 through 39. You see, Isaiah's name itself means the Lord saves. His very identity announces to us grace beyond ourselves. And at the same time, it confronts us in a way we don't like. Salvation cannot come from anywhere else. It confronts us in a way we don't like. You see, we all want to live by our own strategies of self-salvation. Maintaining control, paying our own way, and setting our own terms. But salvation does not come to us in such ways. This book makes clear that divine grace is the only means of salvation. And so the book of Isaiah asks us, will we trust God or will we trust ourselves? 
And that's what Isaiah 7 is calling us to as well. Will we trust God or will we trust ourselves? You see, here in this narrative, we have a distressful setting that bring, within it has a promise of divine coming and then an offer of hopeful deliverance. And these three ingredients from Isaiah 7 are also present with us today. And so let's look together at the first one, a distressful setting. This section uh, of Scripture comes to us after Isaiah saw the king, the famous passage of Isaiah 6, where after the death of their great, uh, great king Uzziah, Isaiah saw the Lord. Under Uzziah, Judah had prospered and had been strengthened like no other except since the time prior to King Solomon. And it is after the death of this great king, the last kind of uh, uptick of faithfulness in Judah's time, that Isaiah gets this glimpse of God's greatness on the throne. The king was great, but this king is dead, and Isaiah has seen the true king. And here's the, this very reality that Isaiah encounters is a vision of glory that he does not get over. He is captivated by the greatness of God, and he leads God's people to this. He yearns for it. He yearns for it in the face of an abandonment of God in the face of faithlessness. Enter Ahaz in verse 10. Ahaz is the, is, is the grandson of King Uzziah. He has inherited the throne from his father of Judah. And Ahaz, from Scripture, is known to be one of the most wicked kings in all of Judah's history. We are told he drove God's people away from the Lord to follow after the ways of the nations that surrounded them. And because of this, God gives Judah into the hand of the Syrians and the northern kingdom of Israel. And so the great king is dead. And this new king, upon his reign, hundreds and thousands have been either killed or taken captive. And then there's betrayal brewing all around them as well. Verse 2 of chapter 7 tells us that Syria and Israel are plotting against Assyria, kind of the global power of the day. And then you've got Syria and Israel plotting against Judah to try to force them to join their cause in verse 6 of chapter 7. All underneath all of this, however, you have Judah who is backstabbing everybody um, by plotting against Israel and Syria and paying off Assyria to do so under the table. Talk about a dysfunctional family, right? And so the people of Judah are tempted then to trust these exalted nations of the earth to deliver them. And so Isaiah goes to great lengths to show them that not only is God exalted, but that anything that they place their trust in in the place of him will ultimately fail them. And so the word of the Lord ironically comes to Isaiah, or through Isaiah to Ahaz while he's out stockpiling for this invasion that is to come. He's making preparations. He is... Um, 
He's doing an inventory of his resources. He's, he is inspecting the city's water supply, actually, specifically. He's already making preparations for the plans that he's set into place. And the application for us here in this setting that Isaiah 7 comes to us in is that distress will lead us to one of two places, faith or faithlessness. Distressing situations will lead us to faith or it will lead us to faithful, faithlessness. You see, Ahaz is desperate. And it's his desperation that rather than plunging himself deeper into God's mercies actually drives him deeper into idolatry. We are told in 2 Chronicles 28 that it was during his time of distress that he became more faithless to the Lord. You see, he creates shrines to these false gods of those who had conquered him thinking, well, I'll just cover my bases here and work all the angles. Perhaps these nations that, we, that won over us, if we create shrines to them, perhaps they'll come to our aid as well. But then drastically, he takes the things set apart for the worship of God in the house of the Lord and uses them to pay tribute to Assyria. So he takes the very things dedicated to the Lord in order to draw in help from elsewhere. Yet in all of this, God offers him a sign and offers Judah a challenge to trust him. This is the setting to which this comes in. Secondly, we notice the second part of this is the promise of a divine coming. Uh, early on when my wife and I started dating, um, I didn't know that she was a really good cook, but she asked me during my birthday what I wanted to eat for my birthday. And little did I know, but she was offering to cook me anything I could imagine, and she's very good at it, I might add. But I'd been living the bachelor life with my dad for some time, and on top of that, if I wasn't living at home with my, my dad, I was living on campus, and so needless to say, uh, my palate uh, for what is good eating back in those days was not very, very high. I had no real good standards of what was good in those days. And so I'm a little ashamed to admit this. My request wasn't very high either. My, my request was, was this. It was nachos. Okay? Not even, if there is such a thing, good nachos. Um, it was specifically, and I was specific in this request. I wanted the nachos made from the cheese that you buy off the shelf. It's not even refrigerated. Um, you would think that'd be enough of an indicator there. And so that's kind of what's happening here in this situation. When the Lord comes to Ahaz, he's giving him this opportunity to make a significant request of him, to, to, to find enjoyment beyond what he might even fathom. And yet he misses the chance to give him something truly great because his expectations of not only what is good in that situation, but what God is capable of were so low. And so the Lord speaks to Ahaz and offers him a sign. He gives him sort of a blank check. He says, you can ask for anything deep or, or high as you might like, as, as deep as the grave or as high as heaven, he says specifically. But Ahaz, rather than ask the Lord for, for this, he shrugs it off in an appearance of piety. 
it appears his, his response is, is disciplined and pietistic. He actually quotes scripture from Exodus chapter 17 in his response. But he's actually refusing God's offer all the, all the while. Isn't it funny that we would quote scripture and all the while miss God's intent for us? You see, he is... He has already decided what he is going to do. He's decided he will rely on Assyria. He's already actually paid them off. He's unwilling to even hear why this decision is unnecessary or wrong. And we hear in the following verses a tragedy that shows us just how far the house of David has turned away from the Lord. The ancestral trademark of the king after God's own heart, who would occupy the throne forever, is now replaced with a king who has rejected God with a trite religious phrase. And in so doing, he shows us just how dug in his heels are in his self-righteousness. What we have in Ahaz is a man with a heart divided. He offers religious pledges while harboring a worldly heart. Isaiah, however, has just seen the king in all of his glory and is captivated with the grace of God in Christ. But that vision and wonder has departed from the house of David. You see, this application that we can draw from this is that often religiosity can be a rouge for our own pridefulness. Like the people of Judah, although Ahaz seems to offer some sort of outward motions of real faith, at the end of the day, he sees no relevance in God's help. The moment Ahaz needed a word from the Lord most, he was too caught up in methods of his own making. And it was those very methods of his own making that led him to not only not be honest with God, but not to be honest with himself. He was willing to trust God as long as God would bless his own efforts and his discipline. And tragically, this shows us that we too can overlook grace often in our rote and reactive. That it's due to these prideful moments that an outward appearance of religiosity can hide our refusal to be honest with ourselves in the Lord. Our refusal to be truthful of our need. You see, the salvation that alone God offers is not a salvation unto self-sufficiency. Christians, we are most prone to forget this. I am most prone to forget this. That it is the same desperate dependency that led us to Christ in salvation That is how we enter more deeply into Christ. Through desperate dependency upon him. That God gives us ever increasing ways of finding our desperation and in so doing our our dependency coming to him. So this religiosity that is kind of exemplified in Ahaz in this moment while looking outwardly like it's pietistic and disciplined, falls short of a surrender in an attempt to sway God towards our own means. But God is too loving 
to give us these lesser forms of deliverance. Aren't you glad? The Lord's answer shows us he will have nothing of it. He overrules Ahaz's religious rejection in order to give him a sign of his trustworthiness to save. And the sign here is deeper than he could ever imagine. And it has implications not just for his current circumstances, but it contains, as Paul describes in Colossians 1.26, the mystery hidden for ages now revealed in God's saints. You see, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. What's so beautiful about this is how the Holy Spirit not only inspired this promise, but the very words of the promise. The Hebrew word in the original language here for virgin is actually not the technical term for virgin, but it has a dual meaning and has a broader, um, the word there has a range of meaning. It can mean uh, a virgin or it can mean a, a young woman of marrying age during that time. And the, the, the placement there is so specific because it has this dual meaning, not only for, a, for the current situations that Judah finds themselves in, but ultimately in redemptive history. And so in current, current situations for them, despite all the threats breathing heavily down upon them, none of them will actually be accomplished. In fact, what Ahaz feared most would not happen. Before the boy, a boy who would be conceived in that time would reach an adolescent age, which would have been 12 to 13 years old, which would have been thought their age of moral responsibility, but before that time would come, these two nations that they so feared would ultimately be no more, Syria and Israel. But sadly, while Judah's refuge in Assyria, okay, would actually become the means of its own undoing. The king of Assyria, whom they had paid off for this, would come against them. Showing us that when God's people don't trust him, they ultimately will pay the price. And so God wants his people to know there is no reason for them to panic. He is with them in their crisis and he will carry them through if they will trust. You see, this means this for us. Ultimately, God will put us in those situations as well that will bring us to this same question. If I have placed my trust in him, will he be true to his promises for me in this moment? You see, faith is the central and avoidable question of all of our lives. He will bring this upon us time and time again. Will we live by faith or we... We won't live at all, as the paraphrase of chapter 7, verse 9 to Ahaz is given. So there's these contemporary, um, current situations that this moment speaks to, that God is in their midst. He will be their strength if they will trust him. Secondly, there's this redemptive history that is, that is bound up in this prophecy, Ultimate salvation cannot come from inside of us. It must come outside. God will bring salvation that disrupts completely our attempts at self-salvation. 
through this miraculous conception of a virgin. And ultimately, despite the failure of God's people, his grace will win out. And so we have this promise of a divine coming here. And then lastly, we have a hopeful deliverance that is given to us. One of the saddest descriptions of the account of Ahaz is found in 2 Chronicles chapter 28 where we find his his legacy and the description is that is given is that it afflicted him and all of these things that he did it did not help him it afflicted him instead of strengthening him that's second chronicles 28:20 and upon his death he was buried in Jerusalem which was not often the time, the place where kings were buried they were, he was not buried among the kings but he was buried outside of a place of honor. And so his legacy becomes one of humiliation because what he made his trust and deliverance. And so we see here that God humbles us in our rejection, but he would rather save us. He would rather save us. That the offer comes to perhaps one of the most wicked kings in all of redemptive history, and yet it's one of the most profound promises an offer of salvation that is still promised today because Emmanuel has come. You see, salvation comes to us in our complete and utter dependence. It is God alone that saves, and he saves completely through his son Jesus, known as Emmanuel, written over 700 years prior to the birth of of Jesus, we find that Isaiah shows us that life will challenge you to trust God in new ways, but if you reach out in utter dependency, and you will grasp God's mighty workings on your behalf. And as uh, pastor and theologian Ray Ortland describes, he says this, if the gospel that you cannot be your own savior but God can save you totally, does not thrill you, it is probably an irritant to your self-importance, your lust for control and moral superiority. But the good news is that the gospel is a salvation that comes outside of us, but it must confront us that we cannot be our own Savior. And what we rehearse during this season of Christmas is that deliverance has come to us in Emmanuel. That Emmanuel has come, but here's the reality. He is coming again. I didn't realize when I wrote this sermon we would be singing Joy to the World. But originally, Isaac Watts, who wrote this hymn, included another verse at the end. And I'd like to uh, recall that to us. I'm not going to sing for you, don't worry. Um, as we remember these things, because Joy to the World is a song that announces how our joy has come in Jesus, but also how it is yet to be realized in Jesus. And so it begins Joy to the World, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king, and let every heart prepare him room. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. And then the final verse says it this way. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. 
He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Far as, far as the curse is found. You see, that last verse is yet to be realized for us today. That joy comes to hearts who make room for Jesus in utter dependency, for he alone is our salvation. Emmanuel has come, let us prepare our hearts, for he is coming again to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And so our response and challenge this morning is this, we find ourselves met with these same three pieces, distressful settings, a divine promise, and a hopeful deliverance will we surrender our hearts fully to him. The promise of Emmanuel leads us to abandon all of our strategies of self-salvation for a dependency on God who saves completely. Will you pray with me?